KUT's AT Explained is back with a brand new season. Our first episode, what's up with that tower in Clarksville? I've heard it called the Clarksville Eiffel Tower, the tower, the leaning tower of Clarksville, all those names. Subscribe to AT Explained wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget our next AT Explained live show at the Paramount Theater on April 3rd. Brand new stories told live on stage. Get your tickets at austintheater.org. Support for AT Explained Live comes from Meals on Wheels Central Texas and World Interiors. The Smokehouse Creek Fire, already the second biggest wildfire in state history, so far 0% contained. The latest from the Panhandle today on the Texas Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. I'm David Brown. Many people trying to evacuate small towns in the high plains as fast-spreading wildfires cut off escape routes. It's a fast-developing story. We'll talk with an evacuee and officials with the Texas A&M Forest Service to get the latest. Also, the Texas Standard's Alexandra Hart on the state's new climate reality and how that affects water and what to plant. Plus, director Richard Linklater and filmmaker Alex Stapleton on the new HBO three-part series based on Lawrence Wright's recent book, God Save Texas. All that and a whole lot more when the Texas Standard gets started right after this. No matter where you are, it's Texas Standard Time on this next-to-last day of February 2024. I'm David Brown. Temperatures starting to cool down a bit today with rain incoming to parts of West Texas, but neither fast enough nor significant enough to help much with a fire disaster continuing to unfold in the Texas Panhandle region. Governor Greg Abbott has issued disaster orders covering 60 counties in the Panhandle, calling for additional firefighters and resources. The worst of it appears to be north of I-40, where gusty winds and dry air made kindling of the grass, taking wildfires from some 60,000 acres burned as we went to air yesterday to what at last check was estimated to be closing in on some 400,000 acres. And the total numbers of structures, homes, businesses consumed by the flames, far from fully known yet. One longtime resident described the likely loss of livestock as monumental. Some fires have been moving so fast it would be simply impossible to outrun them. Over the past 24 hours, evacuations have been the order of the day, hitting a major snag in some towns north of Amarillo, where roadways were cut off by the fires. In the town of Canadian and Hemp Hill County, residents were told to go to a local high school gym to shelter in place. It was just safer to be in a reinforced structure than to try to get away. Wendy Cook is a resident of Canadian, Texas. She joins us now. Wendy... Thanks so much for talking with us. Where have where are you right now? Are you safe? Good morning. Yes, I am safe. I um, was one of many people in my community who evacuated yesterday uh, afternoon at the direction of our county officials. And I, you, I am in Wellington, Texas. Wellington, yes. Something that we're not getting a lot of detail on is whether there have been casualties or injuries here. Are you hearing uh, uh, anything on that score? Uh, there's been no official announcement about it, but as far as I know, um, there have been no casualties and um, maybe only one injury. It's been a huge blessing. Our first responders are amazing. Volunteer Fire Department um, has worked incredibly hard to keep our residents safe. And people have been pretty good about heeding the warnings that have been given to us by our officials. I mentioned how difficult it was for some folks in the area to just get out of town. Did you encounter anything as you were trying to evacuate? 
traffic was tight and we're under uh, portions of the center of town are under um, road construction with a long-term tech stop project and so that certainly constricted traffic flow i you know got out early i guess and um you know didn't experience that my husband um was in town uh we were separated he's uh works for the hospital and so we were separated and um, he was unable to get out once the fire moved in so he was one of those that sheltered in place where where is he now and is he safe Oh, yes, he's safe. Um, I don't know if there are any. I'm not home yet, so I don't know if there are any active fires. I don't believe that there are. I'm not sure. I couldn't speak to that. Seems to be um, moving east, doesn't it? Yes, um, but he's safe. He was safe overnight, and yes, everything's good. Well, uh, that is good to hear. What are you hearing about uh, the difficulty in fighting these fires. I was listening to some radio traffic last night and uh, the back and forth was uh, uh, we need we need dozers, bulldozers, because they're trying to contain this fire and somebody else saying we don't have anything to anything to send to you. So that's one of the complexities of all of this is because when you have a 300,000 acre fire, um, you know, in rural communities, you don't have, you know, the accessibility to these um, major um, hubs of equipment. So, you know, some communities are willing to send things as they can, um, as they're freed up, but they're fighting fires in their own places. So, um, on the evacuation route, I saw many dozers going north and I understand there've been great cooperation from several, um, uh, equipment, um, rescue centers and things that, um, have, um, been landing upon not just Canadian, but the entire panhandle sending resources. You know, you're fighting brush fires and canyons and riverbeds. And so it's not, you know, flat like the plains in our area, at least. And so, you know, there's all kinds of equipment issues and um, trucks break down and tires get, you know, popped and hoses come apart. And so it's, it's definitely, um, a process for our um, volunteer fire department. I know y'all deal with a lot of weather emergencies. What uh, being uh, uh, being in the area, part of the Panhandle that you're in, uh, have you encountered anything like this before? Would you, yeah. do you feel prepared uh, to deal with this? Well, so you know, ranchers are a hardy stock, uh, and uh, so you know, there's you're always at the mercy of the weather. We did have a range fire a couple of years ago that was quite devastating, and then of course, I think the largest one that we've had so far was, I believe, in 2017. But I, just in my rough numbers, I think this um, fire has is larger, and um, so and. Uh, maybe more broadly extensive through the, the Texas Panhandle than the previous one is. So um, you never get used to it. Uh, it's something that you always think about. And, um, you know, we can, we're pretty good about reaching out and helping our neighbors and providing, you know, hay if we need it. And the influx of help um, from people all across the country is just amazing. Uh, I think one of the challenges is just, um, containing all of the physical donations of items and trying to get those uh, out to people who are uh, really need it in the right way. Wendy Cook is a resident of Canadian, Texas, who evacuated from the city yesterday. We're going to turn our attention to what appears to be the largest blaze firefighters are battling right now, the Smokehouse Creek Fire. 
It has scorched more than 500,000 acres since igniting Monday afternoon, according to the Texas A&M Forest Service. It's now the second largest fire in Texas state history, as we understand it. Joining us now, Aaron O'Connor, Public Information Officer for the Texas A&M Forest Service. Aaron, welcome to the Texas Standard. Hi, thank you for having me today. Where, where is the Smokehouse Creek Fire most active right now, and what are you hearing about the status? So the Smokehouse Creek Fire is burning up near the Canadian uh, area in mm-hmm. the Texas Panhandle. Right. Um, it is fairly active all across the fire area. It is currently uncontained, 0% containment on that fire. Um, and so there will still be activity as it continues to burn across the landscape. When, when we talk about second largest in state history, how do you even put that in perspective for folks? Um, so our largest fire in Texas history was a little less than 1 million acres. So this is still about half the size of that at this point. Um, but that's still significant, right? Like one acre is about the equivalent of a football field. So if you think 500,000 football fields have currently burned in that area, that's that's pretty large. Yes, indeed. Um, what about residents, livestock? Uh, we, we, we're you know, not hearing many numbers on casualties right now, which I think is concerning to a lot of folks. Are you hearing anything on any of those fronts? At this time, there have been no confirmed injuries or fatalities reported. Um, We can confirm that there has been structural loss, but as far as the type or the numbers, we don't have that information. It's just such a fast-moving, complex situation at this time. And so our firefighters are focused on life safety. So Mm -hmm. those evacuations were important, getting people out of harm's way. And then we can go back in and evaluate when conditions moderate um, and it's safe to put firefighters in there. Some very alarming aspects about this fire uh, in some places, as people were being informed by uh, apparently they were getting text messages and, and alerts on their phones, uh, they'd try to get out and they would find that, they, that the roads were cut off and they were sort of encircled by the fire. And, and mm-hmm. I, I, uh, what's, what are, what's being done to protect those residents, to your knowledge? Um, so as far as what I know, they've, they've been asked to shelter in place at the local high school. Um, so that is a, um, fairly safe location with like some built out areas around it. Um, and we have crews that are protecting that area and then working to protect the structures in and around Canadian, um, as well as try to head off that fire, slow forward progression. What about the weather? Uh, of course, that that the grass was just kindling and you've got these gusty winds. We're hearing that there may be some rain incoming. Uh, what, what's what's the forecast looking like and how might that affect uh, this fire? So conditions are moderating today and tomorrow. Um, so we're anticipating there's going to be less wind, um, so lower wind speeds, cooler temperatures, um, which is favorable. So our firefighters will be able to increase containment. Um, they'll be able to take advantage of these better conditions. So mm-hmm. the fire will hopefully not be as active um, in anticipation of drier and windier conditions this weekend. Oh, boy. And 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 this isn't the only fire, of course, this smokehouse fire. Uh where, where do they seem to be concentrated and, and um, how much is this putting a strain on resources? Sure. So we do have uh, four other large wildfires that are burning up in the Panhandle area. Um, so that's certainly where the majority of the activity is concentrated. Um, we do have activity elsewhere in the state, but that's kind of our main concern area right now. 
Um, we have hundreds of local, state, and federal resources that are all working on those fires in that area. Um, we've also brought in aircraft, so they will be working um, on those fires when conditions allow them to fly. This is a developing story and one that uh, we will continue to track here at The Standard, as will Aaron O'Connor, Public Information Officer for Texas A&M Forest Service. Aaron, thanks so much for your time and thank you for your update. Thank you. Let's turn now to Wells Dunbar, social media editor, and find out what Texans are talking about online. Wells, welcome back. Hi, David. Well, as we've been discussing, a state of emergency declared in 60 Texas counties due to risk from wildfires, particularly dire there in the Panhandle, where that Smokehouse Creek fire has burnt uh, upwards or close to half a million acres, just a staggering amount. Hearing from folks about this situation on her Facebook page, Mary Schmidt there says she's thinking about the fires and hoping they can be contained along with the safety of everyone involved. David Lee Beiser speaks for several folks on her Facebook page when he asked, asks if the governor has the National Guard or DPS personnel available to help with the fire, or are they all at the border, referring there to the governor's longstanding preoccupation with border security. Also seeing some incredible reports on the Amarillo subreddit, the uh, nearest major Texas city to the fire there. People just complaining about the smoke. You can only imagine what it's like. One user says there's more smoke outside than some of the local barbecue places have seen in their pits all year. Just keeping an eye on this story along with other ones. I'll be back with more later in the show, Dave. Yes, indeed. And be careful there in Amarillo. There have been some warnings issued for folks with respiratory issues. This is a story we continue to track here at the Texas Standard. We'll bring you any updates as conditions warrant. Uh, There's a whole lot more of the Standard just ahead. Stay with us. Support for Texas Standard comes from Teachers Can, a statewide movement to elevate the teaching profession. Businesses and associations can join 150-plus Teachers Can partners in honoring the role teachers play in the success of Texas at TeachersCan.org. Hey, this is Zach Catanzaro. And I'm Walker Lukens. We're the hosts of Song Confessional, the only podcast where today's top songwriters turn your anonymous stories into original songs. This week, we've got a salacious tale of train platforms and anonymous hookups. Austin songstress Buffalo Hunt transforms the confession into a cinematic indie pop gem, exploring the dark pleasures of our bad decisions. Listen to Song Confessional at KUTX.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. A mild February, especially the last couple of weeks, may have folks dreaming of spring. For those with yards, that may mean it's time to start working on flower beds and other landscaping. But with increasingly unpredictable rainfall and extended droughts across Texas, there's been more of a focus on what to plant that will survive our new weather reality. Texas Standard's Alexander Hart looked into ways you can cut your water use without simply letting your lawn die. First, let's clear a few things up. Water-conserving landscaping in central Texas doesn't necessarily mean planting a bunch of cacti or agaves among gravel and rocks. True, those type of plants don't require a lot of water, but that doesn't mean they're a good fit for our area. Daphne Richards is the Travis County Horticulture Extension Agent for Texas A&M AgriLife. We moved to planting all plants that you know come from the desert, which I saw a lot when I first came back to Austin about a decade ago. People wanted to plant desert plants, which are great in the desert with lack of water, but then that cold, if we get a cold winter, which we often do a cold, wet winter, 
then those plants struggle. During the 2021 winter storm, the water in those plants froze solid, leading to them bursting and collapsing. But if not a cactus, what should you plant if you want to limit how much water your landscape needs? That's where native and adapted plants come in. Both can better withstand our climate. Adapted plants may not have originally grown in the area, but are well-suited to our weather while still being non-invasive. Richard says it's important not to take a one-size-fits-all approach when planning a landscape. Maybe different areas of your community have different soil types. In Austin, for example, we've got the Edwards Plateau, um, which is very rocky. And then we've got other regions that have a lot of clay in their soil. So depending on where you are, you still are going to have to pay attention to what you plant. But that's just the plants. The bigger drain on water are those green lawns. Jenna Walker is with the Meadows Center for Water and the Environment at Texas State University. About half of municipal water right now is used for irrigation and for um, people's lawns. And with our extreme drought that our entire region has been in, it's unwise for us to be using that on things that are not necessary. She says that not only is maintaining green turf a poor use of water resources, it's also just not good for the environment. Lawns don't support wildlife and microorganisms that make up the ecosystem. Then there's the issue of runoff. Chemicals and fertilizers used to keep lawns green eventually wash into waterways. Which then can lead to algal blooms and some serious like health conditions for dogs or you know people that are swimming in the water. And, you know, we've heard of this blue-green algae issue in the Austin area. Nutrient levels are, are really driving those types of algal blooms. But Walker also isn't saying to go dig up your lawn right now. She gets the appeal and says that turf can be incorporated into yards in a more sustainable way. My encouragement would be to identify a smaller area within your lawn to, to maintain, and, that, and that's okay. Maybe you look for like a, a more um, drought-tolerant type of turf that you could convert to eventually. Walker says the main thing to remember is that the water we use for our yards has to come from somewhere, that all of our water systems are interconnected. So think of it as each gallon you use on your lawn is one less gallon that's available for the state's beloved rivers, lakes, and swimming holes. I'm Alexandra Hart in Austin. Support for coverage of business comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to protecting Texas employers by investigating fraud and focusing on preventing abuse of the system. More at texasmutual.com slash fraud. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. We've all heard the proverb about one person's trash being another's treasure. Well, for generations of a family now living in Texas, the treasure in question was an old box found discarded many years earlier. Texas Standard commentator W.F. Strong has the story. The Goodman kids in Laredo, Texas, often pulled out this old box any time they had show-and-tell at school. It was the default, prepackaged, surefire interesting subject for all show-and-tell talks. The box, they claimed, with some good evidence backing them, played an important role in the American Revolution. Of course, there were skeptics. How did that box make it all the way across thousands of miles and two centuries from New England to Laredo, Texas? And how could a simple old wooden box have played a role in the American Revolution? The Goodmans brought the receipts, as is often said today, and I'm going to share them. Helen Ford Waring, the Goodman children's grandmother, had endeavored, with great success, to verify claims that had long been made about the box. 
She tracked the box across generations of her family tree to determine who willed it to whom, from which city, and who willed it to them, from what state, etc. Like a good sleuth, she stalked the box, determining who had it for how long and what they used it for. Interestingly, it once was used as a nursery for a beautiful litter of kittens, and was their cat box for some years. In another family, the box was used by a young girl as a dollhouse of sorts. There were many different uses for the box over the eons. The Goodmans had stored it under the dining room table for the primary purpose of being at the ready for show and tell. The box had even traveled across Texas by inheritance, from Corpus to San Antonio to Laredo. Helen did such a good job proving providence that in 1976, the bicentennial year, the Smithsonian Institute came calling. They were looking for artifacts of interest to display during that highly significant anniversary of the American Revolution. The Smithsonian had heard about the box and its connection to that time. They did their own research, including materials dating, and decided that the claims were legitimate and put it on display at the museum during that year. They called it the Robinson Half Chest because it lacked a lid. Where did the box track back to? Helen was able to prove that a great-great-great ancestor of hers was up early one morning walking along the shore near Boston. His name was John Robinson. He found a box, a nice wooden box made of wood half an inch thick. John had the reaction that we have all had, even in modern times, when we come across a well-made, sturdy box. He said to himself, "'Ashamed to let that good box go to waste. Ought to be good for something.' So he took it home. It was only later that he heard of the events of the night before when patriots had snuck aboard a British ship and dumped 300 boxes of tea into the Boston Harbor, otherwise known as the Boston Tea Party. Many of the boxes floated out to sea or were destroyed on purpose to hide the evidence. But this one box survived and was passed down generation to generation across many states to where it resided for years near another shore on the Rio Grande. In 2004, Andre Goodman heard that a Tea Party museum was being built in Boston. He felt that the Robinson Half Chest should have a proper home where more people could see it. He approached them and struck a deal. Today, the box, the only one from that famous tea party, has a place of honor in the museum there. It has made a round-trip journey of thousands of miles via Laredo, Texas, that took over 200 years. It is now on the same docks it was tossed in the ocean from so long ago. It has returned to the place that its journey began. I'm W.F. Strong. These are stories from Texas. Some of them are true. W.F. Strong is a professor of culture and communication at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley. You can check out more of his stories from Texas in Texas Co-op Power Magazine and wherever fine podcasts are served. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas. Families can save for tuition, room and board, books, and other qualified education expenses at eligible schools nationwide. Learn more at TexasCollegeSavings.com.
From the Texas Newsroom, I'm Matt Thomas. Preparations are underway for the arrival tomorrow of both President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump. Texas Public Radio's Gage Davila says the men are visiting the border. This will be the president's second visit to the Texas-Mexico border during his presidency. He first visited the border at El Paso in 2023. Biden has recently considered limiting the asylum process, including closing the asylum process for migrants crossing illegally, according to CNN. Former President Donald Trump will be in Eagle Pass, also on Thursday. Local Republicans have used a city park as a stage for harsh immigration policies. A man convicted of killing two people in Dallas is scheduled for execution tonight in Huntsville. 50-year-old Ivan Cantu has maintained his innocence. A Texas state representative who's undergoing fertility treatment is calling on Governor Greg Abbott to protect in vitro fertilization. KERA's Caroline Love has the story. The Alabama Supreme Court recently ruled that frozen embryos are children. Representative Mahalo Polisa from Collin County is undergoing IVF treatments to start a family. She says the Alabama court's decision decision has dangerous implications for fertility treatment across the nation. We really have to be careful when the judiciary essentially is now coming in to your doctor's office. The largest hospital in Alabama stopped providing IVF treatment as a result of the ruling. Polisa says she wants to prevent something like that happening in Texas. She is running for a second term. I'm Caroline Love in Plano. A Lubbock man who was convicted of one felony and two misdemeanor charges in relation to the January 6th U.S. Capitol breach is now challenging 19th Congressional District Representative Jody Arrington. Ryan Sink has never held office at the local, state, or federal level, but after being convicted last September of obstruction of an official proceeding and entering and remaining in a restricted building, Zink says he was inspired to run for Congress. I decided that when nobody stood up for me, when nobody was coming to help me, an innocent man, face what was going on in a completely corrupt and unjust biased system in Washington, D.C. that has caused the majority of our problems, that I wanted to stand up for this community. 34-year-old Zink says he participated in the January 6th insurrection as a Texas Tech media student serving on the media campaign for his father, a congressional candidate from Arizona. In announcing Zink's conviction, the DOJ cited video evidence Zink recorded of himself as well as written messages in which he describes his involvement in the January 6th Capitol breach. Zink, Vance Boyd, and Chance Ferguson are challenging five-term incumbent Jody Arrington for the 19th congressional seat, a district which stretches from Lubbock to Abilene. I'm Ashley Henderson in Abilene. I'm Matt Thomas from the Texas Newsroom. You're listening to statewide news from public radio stations across Texas. This coverage is only possible because of support from listeners like you. You can help sustain and grow Texas news coverage by donating to your local public radio station today. 33 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm Michael Marks. During the last legislative session, lawmakers passed Senate Bill 17. This is a measure that bans diversity, equity, and inclusion offices, programs, and training in Texas public universities. Since it's gone into effect, students have felt the impact of this change. At the University of Texas at Austin, feelings have been fraught as students and advocates say the school is going above and beyond what's required by the law. Here to tell us more is Kate McGee, who covers higher education for the Texas Tribune. Kate, welcome back to the Texas Standard. Thanks for having me. Can you describe some of the steps that UT Austin has taken to comply with this law since the start of the year? Yes. So um, 
in the fall, you know, UT Austin and lots of schools around the state started to um, have their legal offices look at SB 17 and figure out how the schools should comply with the law come January 1st when it officially went into effect. And so the UT system in particular, you know, they oversee all of the UT schools around the state. They issued guidance that UT Austin, according to the few notices that the administration has sent out to students that UT Austin is using. And so a lot of it was reviewing programs, trainings, um, you know, departments to make sure that they either complied with the law to make changes to them, or in the case that we've seen in at UT Austin, some of these programs have been and centers have been completely shut down come January 1st. Um, related to to Senate Bill 17. Um, so it's been a lot of either adjusting what is currently being offered, you know, renaming offices so that it, they comply. They're no longer DEI offices. Maybe they're more broad to make sure that they're um, helping the entire student body or a complete shutdown and kind of reorganization of how some of these programs were, were, were working or were structured at these schools like UT. And how does this go too far or maybe beyond what the law intended in in the view of some critics? So a lot of the students feel like the way in which UT is interpreting the law is an overcorrection because in the legislation, you know, it says that DEI departments, trainings, uh, programs that are specific to a, a particular race or gender, identity, ethnicity, are not allowed. There were a list of exceptions that the the law had kind of clearly stated. Um, you know, things like having um, classroom classroom content, research, student organizations. Those kinds of things were not supposed to be touched by SB seventeen. And with some of the changes that UT Austin has made this um, this spring so far in the spring semester, like closing down the Multicultural Engagement Center and shutting down a program for uh, undocumented students, um, the students who are critical of how the university is doing this feel like those things were supposed to be clear exceptions that the university should have done more to try and make sure that they could, could still comply and exist within SB 17's parameters and that the school just didn't do that and didn't communicate how they had kind of gotten to this conclusion that these programs and centers just needed to be shut down. Well, is UT Austin unique in taking these kinds of actions, or have other universities in Texas interpreted the law the same way? U- UT is um, definitely, I don't think, completely unique in this scenario. You know, we saw in the fall semester in particular, a lot of schools, you know, I'm thinking about the University of Houston shutting down their LGBTQ center um, for students. You know, we saw schools also kind of shutting down and adjusting um, you, in some instances, particularly around the Monarch program, which is the scholarship for undocumented students, students really feel like that was an overcompliance that was unique because it was dealing with undocumented students and it had nothing to do with, uh, you know, serving students of any particular race, ethnicity, or gender identity. And so therefore should not have even fallen within the parameters of SB 17. Um, a lot of the confusion, I think that students feel like UT is overcorrecting in this case, um, 
is because there has been a lack of communication. Students say that they can't get clear answers. You know, faculty, in the case of the undocumented student program, faculty reached out to UT administrators asking for clarification on, on this, on why they closed this program and said they heard nothing back. And so I think that is why, you know, the UT students in particular have been particularly vocal about um you know, the way in which they feel like UT is um, going too far with how they're interpreting this law. We've been speaking to Kate McGee, higher education reporter for the Texas Tribune. Kate, thanks again. You're welcome. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Oncology, recognizing gallbladder and bile duct cancer awareness month and helping patients and their family members, especially those over 60, understand how to discuss health history and risk factors with their doctors. More at texasoncology.com. Support for Texas Standard comes from BarbaQuest, an original series by the beef-loving Texans at the Texas Beef Council. Texans can stream BarbaQuest episodes and find recipes at beeflovingtexans.com. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. It's the Texas Standard. I'm Laura Rice. Texas is a red state. It's full of cowboys and oil derricks and miles and miles of lawless border. Those might be some of the things you'll hear from someone not from Texas, because anyone who's spent more than a little while here knows the picture's a lot more complicated than that. Texas is huge and diverse, and so while the stereotypes might represent some, they certainly don't represent all. That's the main idea behind the new HBO three-part series, God Save Texas. It's based on the book by the same name by Texas author Lawrence Wright. Wright served as executive producer of the TV series alongside Richard Lincoln. Later, who also directed its first episode. Rick, welcome back to the Texas Standard. Hey, thanks for having us. And filmmaker Alex Stapleton directed the second episode. Alex, it's great to have you on the program. Thank you for, for having me and, and Rick. Uh, Rick, I understand that you have had a long friendship with uh, Lawrence Wright. What did you guys talk about as you kicked off this project? Oh, gosh. Larry sort of snuck up on me with this. He's like, well, you know, when you write a nonfiction book and you talk about a film, I didn't really like, well, I'm a feature film. I don't, yeah. you know, whatever. Uh, we just got to talking and he was just picking my brain about Huntsville and his film. And I don't know, pretty soon I just saw it as the opportunity to exorcise <laughs> some of my Huntsville, um, you want to call them demons or biography or just experiences. I think that's what artists do. They want to process their lives. And I still didn't really exactly know what I was doing at first, but um, we kind of settled into the movie and, you know, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad we did it. Well, Alex, uh, talk about exercising or if I'm saying the emphasizing the right syllables there, but looking back <laughs> at those 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 sort of things that haunt you from your your hometowns. Can you talk about how you got involved in in this? My first phone call, I believe, was with Larry. I had already read the book God Save Texas and was a huge fan. I was living in L.A. actually at the time. And as Larry says, I was a Texan in exile <laughs> for for over 20 years. The book really resonated with me because I felt like Larry articulated my own kind of 
weird feelings of this like kind of push and pull love and hate relationship with Texas and my hometown. And Larry was terribly excited that I was from Houston because he really wanted to dig into an oil story. Yeah, I think he got a very different oil story than he might have expected. But uh, that's how we got started. You've long sort of told other people's stories through documentary and, and different types of film. Was it challenging, Alex, to turn the lens on yourself and, and your family? It's really a pretty personal story you tell. Yeah, it was the hardest film that I've ever made mm. for, for those reasons. I think even like you can feel where it feels challenging and it kind of works because I was on a journey of coming back home. And um, I hope that that people through uh, watching this story, if you're not from Texas, like perhaps um, me being uncomfortable with certain things like <laughs> allows people to also kind of feel like that's okay to feel that way. I, you know. <laughs> the audience shares your discomfort from the beginning, <laughs> the non-Texans, and who can blame them? Well, Rick, you know, you, you kind of alluded to this. You're known so much for your narrative work. Did it feel different to work in documentary? It, it kind of occurred to me with that oh. early footage, though, that you had, that it's sort of a, a structure that you've played with in your narrative work at the same time. Yeah, I mean... I share with Alex and Ileana, we're all distinctly behind the camera personalities, mm -hmm. like most filmmakers. And so I never wanted to be front and center in anything. And that footage I used a long time ago, I was just in a camera test. I wasn't going to be really front and center of that. I didn't imagine that. I just had this footage and some extra shots that I happened to be in. But when you have Alex Gibney and Larry Wright telling you, you know, we really like that stuff about your mom. I think we should go farther there. They subtly, they subtly <laughs> pull it out of you. Even though it was so personal, it felt more collaborative <laughs> maybe than anything I've ever done. So your childhood in Huntsville it coincided with the Supreme Court ban on the death penalty. I, how much did you know about Huntsville's prison system before you really dove deep into this project? Oh, I knew a lot about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's been a subject I've just followed my whole life, kind of like a documentary filmmaker would. Yeah. I cut out articles, I do research. I knew a lot more than I let on in the movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but you mentioned though that, that people, you, maybe you were a bit of a rarity that people don't talk about it that much, that they sort of ignore the, the walls that are so close. Oh, yeah, yeah that's, the film's primarily about that. Like within yeah. the city limits, it's just, it's the local employer, you mm -hmm. know? You don't really... There it is. It's the state's business. I, I always felt that disconnect. It's easy to compartmentalize and put it out of your mind what's going on there. And it's more poignant now when they actually are executing people. Um, you know, it's it's unfortunately very current. You know, I mean, Texas at 6 p.m. is going to execute an innocent man. I will come out and say it. We're doing everything we can. But it's it's. Tragedy is unfolding right in front of us as we speak. Well, Alex, your episode also really confronts some tough realities, primarily in Houston, but also nearby and in, in Port Arthur. Not just environmental justice, but you also make this interesting point uh, about what you say is an overdue reckoning over diversity in, in the workforce of the oil industry. Could you talk a little bit about that? I think the oil and gas industry, the environmental impact that um, the havoc, you know, that it, it wreaks on um, people, humans, is something that we need to be paying attention to. And so 
in getting into the workforce component of it, I think that that's quite often here, we don't necessarily push back industry or we kind of like don't ask a lot of questions or we kind of tolerate and put up with um, the no zoning laws that allow, you know, these chemicals to be so close to our schools and our homes. It's because there's this idea that like, oh, well, they provide jobs. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to make the point that, well, let's just look at these communities that are being the hardest hit. Is everyone working, you know, for uh, a fossil fuel company? Is everyone is is everyone a part of this? And the answer was, you know, no. And I definitely don't believe, well, if you give us jobs, then, you know, everything is good. It was more about like, we're not going to take that excuse anymore, Mm -hmm. I guess. You know, you spent so much of your adulthood outside of Texas, but you you mentioned, are you are you back now? Did you move back to Texas or are you thinking about yes. it? Wow. Oh, I didn't expect I did. that in your journey. Uh, Was this part of the healing? Because of Larry, because of Lawrence Wright. Yeah. Uh, you can leave Texas, but only for so long. It, it pulls no. you back. I'm a, I came back. It was like this weird moment. It was like the Texas gods like wanted me to come back to the state. Um, And now that I'm back, I just, I feel like perhaps the work that I do can help be of service, you know, for some of these issues. And Texas is very, it's diverse. It's very complex. And I hope to kind of be an agent that can translate (laughs) to people in other places of the country that like, um, you know, all the advocacy work that's going on here in Houston about environmental racism and we need help and we need the rest of the country to, to help us shine a light on this. You know, there's something about that Texas spirit I see out there, you know, with that kind of wildcat, highly individualistic. When that's pointed in a productive direction, yep. watch out. You know, Texans have can really change things for the better. Richard Linklater and Alex Stapleton are two of the directors of the new HBO limited series, God Save Texas, based on the book by Lawrence Wright. It is out now. Rick, Alex, thank you again. Thank you. Great talking to you. Support for Texas Standard comes from TCU, exploring renewable and sustainable energy sources to power a clean energy future. Stories of research at endeavors.tcu.edu. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. It's the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Newly released records paint a vivid and tension-packed behind-the-scenes picture of Attorney General Ken Paxton's impeachment trial last year. You'll recall Paxton faced 20 articles of impeachment approved by the Texas House but was acquitted by the state Senate after a 10-day trial. According to documents obtained by the Texas Newsroom, witnesses ordered to testify accused Paxton of bullying and protested answering questions under oath. What are the biggest takeaways from the hundreds of pages about the trial proceedings? Lauren Magahi is back with us. She's an investigative reporter and editor for the Texas Newsroom based out of our home station, KUT in Austin. Lauren, welcome back. Thanks for having me, David. You uh, had asked for these records before. They said no. You went back and they gave them up. Uh, what are the big standouts in, in these trial documents? 
Uh, well, there's a lot of them. <laughs> First off, you know, I was surprised that I wasn't surprised during the trial that they said I couldn't get all of the documents that had been filed with the court of impeachment. But then when I asked once it was over and received them, I didn't expect to get hundreds and hundreds of pages, mm. which is what we got. And if you'd like to read them yourself, they are <laughs> published in full on KUT.org. So you can you can troll through there. You know, there were a few things that stood out. Most of these documents were responses to subpoenas from potential witnesses. Almost everyone, maybe unsurprisingly, did not want to testify in the trial, mm -hmm. did not want to produce documents. And amongst those were Laura Olson, who's a woman that Ken Paxton was accused of having an affair with, and Nate Paul, the man accused of bribing Ken Paxton. So we got a little bit more insight into their arguments about why they didn't need to take the stand and why they didn't need to produce documents that might be pertinent to the corruption allegations. Yeah, that, that was one of the key findings. You identified three in total, right? That's right. Uh, the, the last one we kind of pulled out was uh, witnesses that were seen as kind of uh, anti-Paxton or Paxton had perceived them as enemies of his said that he was bullying them with these overly broad requests uh, before and during the trial. Apparently, his lawyers wanted to wanted them to produce, you know, upwards of a decade's worth of communications with clients and members of the media and legislators and appointed officials. And they just said that, you know, these requests were so broad that their only purpose was to be harassing and not to actually get at any information. Uh, remind us, who was ordered to testify under oath? Who wasn't? And, and I'm curious, why do you think that that it followed uh, the pattern that it did? Well, there were a lot of people on the subpoena lists, um, but only a small number of people ended up testifying. The whistleblowers, a couple of current and former agency employees. Paxton did not testify. Um, the woman with whom he was accused of having the affair that I mentioned mm -hmm. did not testify. And Nate Paul, the man at the center of this entire corruption allegation scheme, did not testify. So I think, you know, for me, the documents still leave open a lot of questions as to why the decisions were made the way they were. Now, have Paxton and his team responded to the release of these documents? We did get a response from one of Paxton's uh, defense attorneys, Dan Cogdell, you know, he was basically like, look, I'm focused on the cases in front of me. Interestingly enough, one of the cases in front of Dan Cogdell is a securities fraud charge against Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton. He's also defending him in that case. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, they, they kind of just said, hey, thanks for reaching out, but we're not interested in, in even looking at these documents. We were there. You know, mm -hmm. we know what happened. Well, what about other Texans? Do you expect these records to affect the public perception of Paxton as Attorney General? I can't say that. You know, what I what I will say is we wanted to make the public record of this historic impeachment proceeding as full as possible. You know, we paid for these records, but we wanted to make them free to everyone uh, in full. So, you know, in future, if we ever need to look back at this, there's a more full accounting of what happened. Uh, of course, this is ongoing reporting that you're doing on this story. Uh, what can folks do if they have information, perhaps? Well, we have a tip line. So if you're looking through these hundreds of pages of impeachment records and see something interesting you don't think has been written about lately, you can email us at tips at KUT.org and uh, we'll take a look at it. You can also just send any general tips about any potential investigative story you think should be dug into by me or anyone at KUT or the other Texas NPR affiliate newsroom. So email us tips at KUT.org.
Lauren McGahey is investigative reporter and editor for the Texas Newsroom. Lauren, thanks so much. Thanks, David. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. Wells Dunbar is back with more comments from listeners across the state. Uh, Wells, what are you seeing online? Hi, David. Well, we're continuing to monitor the situation we're talking about at the top of the show, the Smokehouse Mm -hmm. Creek uh, fire in Hutchison County there in the Panhandle. Uh, As we heard from our friends at the Texas A&M Forest Service, an estimated 500,000, fully half a million acres uh, impacted by that fire, and they tweeted just as much uh, some two hours ago. Uh, Also keeping an eye on another fire in Gray County, about 70 miles southeast of there. That would be the Grapevine Creek mm-hmm. Fire. Uh, Texas A&M Forest Service keeping close watch on that one as well. They tweet that it is uh, currently showing an estimated uh, 30,000 acres impacted as of one hour ago. So a reminder, yes, to stay safe there uh, in that panhandle region. And also, as we noted, yes, uh, just many areas impacted. Uh, Governor Greg Abbott declaring a state of emergency for sixty, uh, fully 60 counties in Texas. Uh, and a reminder uh, how rapidly things can change here uh, from uh, Joe Pacina on our Facebook page, who notes that, yeah, it was 85 degrees yesterday where he was. Now it's 40 degrees yesterday with wind. So those real shifts conditions can uh, make for quite an unpredictable uh, scenario there uh, in, in these uh, in these moments. So uh, very um, important to stay safe and, and mindful of all that situation, David. Yes, indeed. And uh, we should point out, uh, I mean, there's some incredible pictures that we're seeing online. Now, there's a picture of, of, of cattle running from the wildfires, truly uh, unnerving images. Uh, the Pantex yeah. plant, which is northeast of Amarillo, I don't know if uh, folks have heard about this. This is the place that does the disassembly of the nuclear uh, weapon stockpile. They evacuated non-essential staff on uh, Tuesday night, apparently out of an abundance of caution. But at last word, uh, there are firefighters in the area, and uh, they have resumed operations uh, right now. And so, obviously, a developing story and one that we continue to track. Definitely so. Another developing story that folks are watching closely. What's going to be a case of dueling visits to the border tomorrow. Uh, We're going to see former President Donald Trump appearing alongside Governor Abbott at Eagle Pass, the apex of the governor's uh, immigration showdown with the feds. That happening tomorrow. Meanwhile, uh, President Joe Biden appearing, I believe, in Brownsville uh, in the Rio Grande Valley. Uh, uh, So uh, I don't think they're going to be speaking side by side, uh, you know, at the at the same exact time. But yep. just an, uh, a, a, another uh, depiction of the importance of immigration uh, this election year. Uh, Judy Hemmed on our Facebook page notes that the immigration spectacle will be in Eagle Pass this week, uh, referring to that Republican uh, gathering, despite the fact that crossings are down there. So lots to consider. And yeah, lots and lots of news certainly to come out of those events tomorrow as well, David. Well done. Well, Dunbar monitoring the talk of Texas on this Wednesday. We're out of time for today's program, but you keep up with the news 24-7. You know where, texasstandard.org. Our spring interns include Elizabeth Jimenez, Alan Tiscareno, and Jesus Vidalis. Managing editor of The Standard is Gabriel Munoz. Managing producer Laura Rice. Executive producer Rhonda Fanning. We'll be back here tomorrow. Hope you can join us. Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Waldrich, Adrian Killam, the George Huntington Family, and St. David's Foundation. 
Additionally, Texas Mutual Insurance Company is a founding sponsor of Texas Standard. If you want to know what's going on in the world, then you need to know what's going on in Texas. Every weekday on the Texas Standard, we bring you stories from across the state that affect what's going on elsewhere. As part of the NPR Network, an independent coalition of public media podcasters, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Michael Marks. Talk to you tomorrow. Do brain games really make me smarter? What is all this screen time doing to my brain? How do I protect my brain as I age? Find the answers to life's most and least pressing questions about your mind with the Two Guys on Your Head podcast. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts.